Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We've got some amazing articles for you today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. This one was racing through the internet amidst all the other muck we have to kind of make <laughs> our way through these days. But did you guys hear about the parrots that were removed from UK Family Safari Park after teaching each other to swear and then oh. laughing about it? <laughs> <laughs> I saw a headline, but I didn't click on it. Is it good? Oh, boy. I mean, it's short and it's sweet. But basically what happened was there was a flock of five African gray parrots that were newly adopted into this wildlife park, but they had to remove them from public display because not only did they start swearing at people visiting the park, but they started laughing about it, too. <laughs> they accepted the new flock on August 15th. And, you know, African greys are some of, the, if not the most intelligent parrots sure. that we're aware of. They can have personalities. They have a really expansive vocabulary that they learn from humans. So what happened was when these birds were taken in, they were quarantined together and they essentially taught each other how to swear. <laughs> and so because, you know, they were doing this, it made the staff laugh because a bunch of sure. really intelligent birds swearing at each other is extremely funny. But that just encouraged the birds even more. That's right. Now they've learned it's funny, just like a kid. <laughs> exactly right. So they learned that they were getting positive feedback from it. So they kept doing it and then incorporated the laughing into their retina new, as it were. <laughs> and this is not entirely new to the park. The park's chief executive officer, Steve Nichols, said, we have always taken in parrots that have sometimes had a bit of a blue language. And we've gotten really used to that. So every now and then you'll get one that swears. It's always funny. But just by coincidence, we took in five in the same week. And because they were all quarantined together, it meant that one room was just full of swearing birds. <laughs> <laughs> and then the more they swear, the more you laugh, which then triggers them to swear again. So it was this just like escalating compounding of bird cuss laugh over and over. He even said that it led to something akin to, quote, an old working men's club scenario, which is <laughs> such a British way of phrasing it. I don't it, even right? know what that is, an old working men's club. But I'm sure you can imagine it. Oh, I can make some stuff up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so within 20 minutes of these parrots being on display to the public, there were reports of the parrots swearing at a customer. And while the visitors saw the funny side of it, the team were worried because they had a weekend coming up and were expecting a lot of young children. Mm. So even though they want to give people some lighthearted relief, they decided to put the birds in a place where they could not be heard before the children arrived. So now they're put into separate groups. They basically had to separate them because they were ca causing too much trouble in the classroom. That's, that's not what you do. Now each individual gray parrot is going to teach his new friends. <laughs> this is just going to spread. They didn't indicate whether the groups are going to be all African grays or all parrots or maybe a mixed aviary. But oh, they'll put them with a bunch of dumb birds. So they maybe. <laughs> uh, I, I'm assuming they kind of know what to do in terms of you know how to handle this but right i do like how it's kind of a light-hearted contagion scenario yeah instead of <laughs> absolutely respiratory problems you get swearing problems and 
and laughter. I mean, I really feel like this is something that if their social media team were a little bit wise, they would maybe put it with like a content warning or something. But I would love desperately to see oh, yeah. a video of this. I want a video for sure. Oh, yeah. I would pay good money to see this. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from LiveScience.com, and it's titled, There's Too Much Gold in the Universe, No One Knows Where It Came From. <laughs> and gold is a fundamental element, which means you can't make it through ordinary chemical reactions. It's not mm -hmm. a compound. Alchemists have tried for centuries, but to make the sparkly metal, you have to bind 79 protons and 118 neutrons together to form a single atomic nucleus. Too much work. Yeah, I am not <laughs> sciencey enough to know exactly how that happens, but clearly it's difficult. <laughs> it's actually an intense nuclear fusion reaction to do that. Yeah. And that sort of intense fusion doesn't actually happen frequently enough, not at least not nearby, to make the giant trove of gold that we have on Earth and elsewhere in the solar system. Hmm. So they're saying there's like a giant fusion reactor somewhere in the universe just spewing gold out, but we don't know where that is. Yeah, that's one possible theory. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or it's pirates have buried their treasure all over the universe and we just gotta <gasps> find it. I also Space like that pirates. a lot. Yes. <laughs> Firefly was right. <laughs> so neutron star collisions do build gold by briefly smashing protons and neutrons together into atomic nuclei, and then they spew those newly bound heavy nuclei across space. So you're not too far off, Jen. But regular supernovas can't explain the universe's gold because the stars massive enough to fuse gold before they die, which are rare, become black holes when they explode. Oh. And Ooh. so you'd see the gold just get sucked into the black hole. Rude. <laughs> so what you're saying is if we're looking for buried treasure, a black hole is where we need to go. Exactly. Well, this uh, bodes very well for all of the space tourism that's ticked up again. Yeah, go pan for your own gold in space. That's right. in the black yeah. hole. <laughs> Head for the nearest black hole, billionaire. You'll be fine. There's all the gold there. <laughs> so there are some otter star flipping style supernovas, which are called a magneto rotational supernova, which spins very, very fast. Chiaki Kobayashi, who's an astrophysicist at the University of Hertfordshire in the UK, he says that during a magneto-rotational supernova, a dying star spins so fast and is racked by such strong magnetic fields that it turns itself inside out as it explodes. And Ooh. as it dies, the star shoots white-hot jets of matter into space, and because the star has been turned inside out, its jets are chock-full of gold nuclei. Hmm. But still, Kobayashi and her colleagues find that even neutron stars plus magneto-rotational supernovas together can't explain just how much gold there is on Earth. She says, past studies were correct that neutron star collisions release a shower of gold, but they did not account for the rarity of those collisions, and even rough estimates show that they don't collide nearly often enough to have produced all the gold found in the solar system. Hmm. Have they considered space leprechauns? <laughs> I don't see any mention in this paper of that, but I'm sure we could find their email and let them know yeah. what we think. I'm sure someone on YouTube has already addressed this. Yeah. Well, that are, like it's a giant conspiracy run by the global financial markets. And, I, you know, I'm sure you could take this in a really dark direction. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah the absolutely. Nazi gold was shot into space, so Switzerland <laughs> didn't have to claim anything about it. I get it. Wow. <laughs> Sorry. I wasn't expecting you to have an example ready, so I'm <laughs> <laughs> It's just a logical leap from space leprechauns, right? That's Very true. true. Very That's true. true. <laughs> 
<laughs> Ian Roderer is an astrophysicist at the University of Michigan who hunts traces of rare elements in distant stars, and he says that this paper is not the first to suggest that neutron star collisions are insufficient to explain the abundance of gold. But the new paper, which was published September 15th in the Astrophysical Journal, has one really big advantage, which is that it's extremely thorough. It contains references to 341 other publications, which is about three times as many references as the typical paper in wow. the Astrophysical Journal these days. And Ooh. using this approach, the authors were able to explain the formations of atoms as light as carbon-12, which is just six protons and six neutrons, and as heavy as uranium-238, which is 92 protons and 146 neutrons. And this is a really impressive range because this covers elements that are usually ignored in these types of studies. Hmm. And mostly, the math worked out. Neutron star collisions, for example, produce strontium in their model, which matches observations of strontium in space after the one neutron star collision scientists have directly observed. But gold still remains an enigma. There's something out there that scientists don't know about that must be making gold, according to Kobayashi, or it's possible neutron star collisions make way more gold than existing models suggest. In either case, astrophysicists still have a ton of work to do before they can explain where all that fancy bling came from. Wow. <laughs> next link. Next, next link. link. All right. Well, this next link comes from Discover Magazine by Riley Black. It's called, Why Did Our Mammal Ancestors Stop Laying Eggs? Which, oh, good you know, question. It is a good yeah. question. We yeah. should start by pointing out the obvious. Some mammals do still lay eggs, namely the duck-billed platypus and the spiny echidna. And these creatures belong to an archaic mammal group known as monotremes, which split off evolutionarily from the rest of us more than 100 million years ago. So it is a given that we all used to lay eggs. It's just a question of why did we stop? And mm -hmm. to figure out when the rest of mammalia stopped laying eggs, we have to go back over 300 million years ago when the first mammal ancestors split off from the shared reptile ancestors. Okay. And this new branch of creatures were known as synapsids. And at that point, we know for sure they still all laid eggs, and they continued to do so for millions of years. So here's where we get to a big gray area in the fossil record. There's only a few key data points. For example, in 2018, paleontologists Ava Hoffman and Tim Rowe announced that they had found an entire clutch, meaning a fossilized mother and a whole group of babies, of a protomammal called Cayentotherium. This was a, a weasel-like protomammal that we had fossils of before, we knew, but we had never found one with all the babies all together in the litter. Ooh. And it lived during the Jurassic about 185 million years ago, and Hoffman and Rowe concluded that the Cayentotherium must have laid eggs because the sheer size of the litter was too big for live births to have been possible. Hmm. Unfortunately, they have to rely on deductions like these because egg-laying mammals, including the platypus and the echidna, generally lay soft-shelled eggs, which are more hmm. likely to decompose and not get fossilized. They've really never found a bunch of good fossilized eggs to figure out at what point did this stop. Mm -hmm. Another key place paleontologists look for clues is pelvis size. As the pelvis of a particular species gets smaller, it gets more and more likely that that animal is giving birth to live young rather than laying eggs. And this didn't actually make sense to me because I think of lots of small eggs versus one big baby, right? Right. Yeah. Wait, wouldn't a smaller pelvis make live birth more difficult? Right. Well, see, this is what I thought. But you got to think about like a chicken laying an egg. It lays exactly one egg at a time, right? So if a human woman were laying an egg instead of a baby, you would have, imagine like the entire baby all balled up 
Whereas mm. live young can kind of like slither out lengthwise <clears throat> and you only <laughs> have to <laughs> and you only have to worry about the size of the head getting through the birth canal. So actually okay. giving birth to live young, it's it's easier. You can kind of squish them out as opposed to like <laughs> forcing a giant ball of an egg out. <laughs> Deep breaths. <laughs> <sighs> Mm -hmm. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, and if you really want to get specific with it, basically the placenta is sort of like an eggshell. Like that's where the shift happened, where we do have this sort of shell around the baby, Mm. but then the water breaks, the placenta opens, and the baby comes out without the entire placenta going all in one go. Right. Mm -hmm. And they said, overall, scientists say there's nothing inherently superior about live birth. It just seems to kind of be another way of doing things that's sometimes useful and sometimes not. And in fact, we can't even be certain that marsupials and mammals share a common live birth having ancestor because live birth has been shown to evolve independently over 100 times in the fossil record, including many reptile species that actually have live births, including boa snakes and blue tongued skinks. The boa snake and the blue-tongued skink share a common egg-laying ancestor. They split off. They both were still laying eggs. And then each one independently shifted to live birth. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, the end result is we don't know. It's really very, very fuzzy. And until we find that, you know, holy grail of a a clutch of eggs from Mm -hmm. particular mammals along the evolutionary path, we're just kind of not going to know. I will close on a fun fact from the article that is only loosely related but was incredibly adorable. (laughs) Baby monotremes, such as baby platypuses, are called puggles. So, yeah, if you you ever see a baby platypus, it's not a platypus. It's a puggle. Well, dadgummit. (laughs) That is precious. So that's some cuteness to kind of a chaser for the horrible horrible. (laughs) (laughs) For the slithering that will never escape my mind. That word choices that did me in. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. Next link comes to us by Jack Guy from CNN. Scientists have created a super enzyme that eats plastic bottles six times faster. Ooh. Nice. That sounds useful. Yeah. We all know plastic's a big issue. Yeah. (laughs) I'm preaching to the choir here, but a team of researchers that previously re-engineered a plastic eating enzyme named P-E-T-A-S-E, and the P-E-T is capitalized, so I'm just going to call it PETASE. They've now combined it with a second enzyme to speed up the process. Okay. This could have obviously major implications for recycling polyethylene terephthalate, PET, which is the most common thermoplastic used in single-use drink bottles and even carpets and clothing. There's been a lot of attention about how fast fashion and non-cotton or plastic-derived clothing is just ending up in landfills. Takes forever to degrade. Mm -hmm. I mean, not forever. Hundreds of years to degrade in the environment, (laughs) which is just quantifiable, but still feels like forever. Might as well be forever, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Nobody's going to want your forever 21, whatever, (laughs) throwaway clothing in 200 years. But what this PTASE does is it breaks it down into its building blocks in just a few days. John McGeehan, who's the lead co-author and director for the Center of Enzyme Innovation at the University of Portsmouth, said that this latest development represents a huge step towards using enzymes to recycle plastic and reduce plastic pollution. They were pretty surprised it worked so well, even though they're very careful to note the process is still way too slow to be commercially viable right now. Womp womp. But 
you know, progress happens in zigs and zags. This is a really big step. And the way that this super enzyme works is that it combines PTase and mehetase, which is just M-H-E-T-A-S-E. Okay. Um, it's two different enzymes. And what they experimented with was a mixture of the two, found that it broke down PET twice as fast as PTase on its own, but then connecting the two enzymes, basically stitching them together, increased the speed by a further three times. Hmm. They Ooh. used a device called the Diamond Light Source that uses x-rays that are 10 billion times brighter than the sun to be able cool. to see individual atoms. I just, yeah, the diamond light source, I was like, that's a pretty highfalutin kind of name, but okay. It's worth yeah. yeah. 10 billion times brighter than the sun. Yeah, you can have that, yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. I tip my hat to you there. And so with this, they're able to see individual atoms to map the molecular structure of the MHETAs. And this is a technique that's already used in the biofuels industry, which use enzymes to break down cellulases. But this is the first time the enzymes have been combined to break down plastic. So, you know, even though cutting plastic out of our lives may not be pragmatic, an ambitious recycling strategy could slash 31 to 45 percent of plastic pollution, which is significant. Hmm. Yeah. That's not yeah, bad. That's no joke. Not only that, there's a French firm called Carbios that announced their own PET eating enzyme. They're going to be testing that at a demonstration plant near the city of Lyon in 2021. Assuming 2021 still exists. <laughs> Assuming we get that far. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Well, speaking of unnatural fabricated substances, this article <laughs> comes to us from foodandwine.com, and it's titled, Irish Court Says Subway Bread is Too Sugary to be Called Bread. Oh, snap. <laughs> yeah. I got to say, it doesn't surprise me. That stuff, it's <laughs> weird. Like, Subway bread smells different than other bread. You guys, mm -hmm. am I the only one who knows, like, has nope. experienced that? Wasn't there some kind of compound used in the bread that is also found in yoga mats? Would not do you guys remember hearing I, about I this? think I do. And that it's just, there comes a point where you're just like, sure, might as well. Like, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, actually, you're spoiling my article, oh, Andy, no! so let's get into it. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Forgive me. No worries. It's still very entertaining. <laughs> the court case itself is a slightly confusing one, unless you're well-versed in Irish tax policies, but it started when a Subway franchise owner challenged the tax authority's decision not to issue a refund for value-added tax, or VAT, which is a tax system in Europe, on some takeout foods. Galway-based Bookfinders LTD said that it shouldn't have to pay VAT on hot coffee and tea or on the hot sandwiches that weren't eaten inside the restaurant. Okay. So its argument was that since the sandwiches contain bread, they should be considered a staple food and shouldn't be taxed. Oh. But the five Supreme Court judges countered by suggesting that those sandwiches aren't served on bread at all, at least not under the <laughs> statutory definition of bread. <laughs> I mean, so all of this was a tax avoidance strategy yeah. that uncovered all this garbage? Yep, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And can you imagine, I mean, the bad press that Subway's gotten out of this now. I mean, if they had just kept their mouth shut, but instead they had to go and say, we want to save a little money. And now they've, they've uh, had the world announce that their bread isn't bread. Yeah. Well, it was only one franchiser, right? Or was it like a full Exactly. Yeah, okay. it was one franchiser who <laughs> caused this whole thing to happen in Ireland. So wow. I'm sure Subway is not 
not happy about that. I can imagine. Ooh. So according to the Irish Independent, the judges ruled that Subway's bread is not a staple food because its sugar content is 10% of the weight of the flour Whoa. in the dough, that's which is enormous. wild. Yeah, that's a lot. Like think of that's how big, like, yeah, a one foot Subway sub is 10% sugar of the bread. Like that's oh. so much. Yeah, that's like a couple inches. Like that's, oh, wow. Yeah. So the Value Added Tax Act 1972 stipulates that sugar, fat, and bread improver cannot add up to more than 2% of the weight of the flour. And those limits are in place to prevent things like pastries and other sweet baked goods from being labeled as staple foods and exempt from being taxed. Mm -hmm. So Justice O'Donnell dismissed Bookfinder's appeal on Tuesday, although he did acknowledge that some of the arguments presented on their behalf were ingenious. <laughs> An appeal commissioner also said that Subway's hot sandwiches were not eligible for a 0% tax rate, so Bookfinder's was doubly denied. Oh, so now he like owes them a lot of money. Yeah, wow. I think so. So this isn't the first minor controversy about the content of Subway's baked goods either. In 2014, a petition circulated asking its U.S.-based restaurants to remove an ingredient called again. <laughs> to remove an ingredient called azodicarbonamidine. Nope, azodicarbonamide from its breads. <laughs> Let me try and get that, just in case you want to use the real word. <laughs> uh, to remove an ingredient called azodicarbonamide. Azodicarbonamide. Sorry, y'all. This is a really... Something is f***ing me up here with this word. All right. Please keep this. <laughs> to remove an ingredient called azodicarbonamide from its breads. Got it. Yay! All right. <laughs> Although the FDA has approved the use of... Azzy, as a whitening agent for cereal flour, <laughs> as a dough conditioner, it is also found in yoga mats, shoe soles, and <gasps> synthetic leather. There it is. Yeah. yeah. It's a dough conditioner, so it makes it silky soft to the touch. Yeah, kind of stretchy. And yeah, and a whitener, too, which is oh. like too close to bleach in yeah. some ways. Yeah. Mm. So it is worth noting that Australia and the European Union have both discontinued its use in food products. And Subway, after a petition started making its way around the internet, said, even though this ingredient is safe, we are removing it from Subway bread. Mm. This process began last year and is nearly completed. We have already developed an improved bread formula, conducted extensive performance and consumer testing on it, <laughs> and pending final government approvals, we should complete the entire conversion process within the coming weeks. Yeah, yoga mats so are performance tested too. Like, performance <laughs> testing doesn't make it sound any better. Yeah. <laughs> So I think this article pulled a little bit of a fast one on us, presenting old news as current news, uh, because now the article ends saying, six years later, the bread is ostensibly better. And for now, we can still call it bread in this country. Can't do in it in Ireland. Country. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very true. That's definitely something I've seen a lot of is like fast food companies here put in a bunch of junk that overseas they are not allowed to put in legally. So like if you go mm -hmm. to a McDonald's overseas, it will be a objectively better food product. Than it is yep. here. Yeah. But who wants that kind of nanny state telling you what to eat? <laughs> Come on. If I want to eat a yoga mat, the government can't tell me not to. <laughs> I want my bread with Azzy in it, dang it. <laughs> I like that you guys are on nickname basis. I mean, you did spend a lot of time putting in the work. Right, right. But yeah, Azzy yeah, just is I way got catchier. Got You've gotten you know, to know each other. <laughs> yeah, even said it right once or twice. Like, yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link.
Uh, we have a lot of articles out nowadays, it feels like, of, you know, millennials are killing blank, the coffee industry, the whatever. Like, millennials are killing everything, according to journalists. Oh, yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. I'm so tired of it, mostly because we all know it's the boomers, but right. carry on. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, now we have an article that very kindly points out something that millennials are saving. <gasps> Whether we're happy they're saving them or not, you'll have to be the judge of. The title of the article is How Hong Kong is Modernizing Love Hotels. Do you guys, do you know what a love hotel is? I can make some guesses. (laughs) Yeah, your guesses are correct. It's it's (laughs) hourly hotels for the purposes of intimacy. They originated in Japan, but they've been popular in Hong Kong since the 1960s. And unlike here, they are culturally very acceptable. They're not disreputable. There are some seedy ones, but there are also plenty of really nice ones. And it really Mm -hmm. is seen as just an opportunity for some privacy, which is fairly hard to come by in some parts of Asia. Oh, yeah. When you have population density to the levels that you do there, like there's definitely an acceptability to it. Right. But cultural acceptance aside, in the past, they have nonetheless been pretty much used exclusively for their intended purpose. But recently, (laughs) couples, especially young couples, have found a much wider range of uses for them. And technology plays a big role, as it always does with those millennials. First, the new generation of love hotels promises zero FaceTime with any employees, which people really like, you know. Ah, yeah. So you reserve your room, you pay for it over an app, and that gives you a digital code to unlock the door. Nice. And then after you check out, the code is changed remotely again, and somebody else can go in. So, which I I stopped for a minute. I was like, so there's nobody cleaning the rooms in between? Like, you know, (laughs) I'm not sure about that. I'm sure the scheduling accounts for at least some perfunctory cleaning or hopefully more in-depth in the current environment. Right. Right. One hopes. Mm -hmm. Second, (laughs) the rooms, it's now very common for them to be furnished with TVs and streaming and game services because privacy doesn't necessarily mean intimacy. Sometimes a group of friends just want to hang out. Yeah. So they've kind of become little home away from homes, sort of. And this is this is a general trend in all love hotels. But in Hong Kong, it is particularly relevant because, as you noted, Hong Kong is officially ranked as the least affordable place to live anywhere in the world. Six out of 10 Hong Kongers aged 25 to 34 live with their parents. Yep. The median income for this age group is about two thousand dollars a month converted to U.S. dollars. And a one-bedroom apartment in Hong Kong costs about $2,100 a month just for rent, never mind food and utilities and all those other things you have to spend money on. Yikes. And, of course, with all these kids at home, older married couples also find it just as hard to get any privacy of their own. So, in fact, the average Hong Konger, married or not, visits a love hotel about five times a month. Whoa. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. And if you don't reserve in advance, you may find yourself waiting in line for hours to check in. So just the visual of that is insane to me. Like, we're all just waiting in a line on the sidewalk. It's very awkward. I mean, now I'm, like, imagining, like, you know, you have a partner and you and your partner and your parents both are going to separate rooms at the same love hotel just because y'all need some separate time. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, wow. and some of the users did note, despite cultural acceptability, it is still embarrassing to run into someone you know in line. Mm-hmm. One couple that was interviewed said they go out of their way to pick newer love hotels that come equipped with small kitchens where they can cook dinner together. Oh. Because if you time oh. it right, a couple hours at a love hotel is still cheaper than dinner out at a nice restaurant. And, oh, they, wow. you know, wow. date night, you don't want to go out every single night. They just go somewhere else and cook dinner together. Aww. Others even said, and this is kind of sad, they rent the room by themselves just to take a shower, eat a meal, and pretend they live alone for a few hours. 
Oh, so, honestly, yeah. I was imagining that. Yeah, yeah, I was totally like, I can imagine going and doing that and just having a private little respite uh -huh. away from my parents and the pop density. Wow. Yeah. So they do have a nice place to go, but it is sort of an undercurrent of sadness <laughs> beneath it all. <laughs> it should be noted that the walls in love hotels are just as thin as they are in the regular apartment buildings in Hong Kong. <laughs> mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. as one love hotel guest put it, you can hear the noise from other rooms, but you don't know who they are, so it's less embarrassing. Mm. So mm -hmm. better to listen to strangers than your parents, I guess. <laughs> Very <laughs> true. Yeah, yeah Very absolutely. True. <laughs> and while tourism is down worldwide, including in Hong Kong, Love Hotels did see a big drop in business right at the start of the pandemic, but now they say they're seeing about twice as many guests per day as they were before COVID struck. So people wow. are clearly wow. in need of a little, you know, a little mini vacation, even if it's only for a oh, few yeah. hours. Wow. I don't know. I, I don't see it taking off here. Just, I mean, maybe in a place that's super dense, like New York or someplace where you're really struggling to get more mm -hmm. space. But mm -hmm. I, we're nowhere near close to Hong Kong, even in our most dense cities. So I feel like I can imagine Las Vegas innovating on this idea yeah. just because. But <laughs> they probably already have the infrastructure. I think it's a little bit more about making that seedy motel just something a little bit more winky. Metropolitan. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's about changing the cultural view of them more than ha we've yeah. we've never thought of hourly hotels. No, we have. We have them. We just <laughs> we just have to make them acceptable to everybody. Right. 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 Next link. Next, Next link. link. Next link comes to us from Massive Science. Apparently, every Tuesday in September, Massive has been publishing something about the butt. They call it Butt Month. So what? technically, we're recording <laughs> this in October. I feel a little bad that I've been missing out on this whole month, and I may oh have to go goodness. back retroactively. But um, <laughs> they, they apparently do this thing called Butt Month. And for this article by Sahana Sitaraman, this is escaping through a predator's butt is a common strategy for prey. Okay. <laughs> it's like a That's really it. short digestive tract, I guess. I mean, it's more that some some prey species have evolved to just survive going oh, okay. through a digestive tract. But there are some species that actively seek out being pooped out. Huh. Wow. Oh, okay. yeah. So think okay. about, you know, if you were swallowed whole, like, you know, think about Pinocchio or the Jonah story. You're swallowed by a whale. We usually have this idea of it just gets regurgitated back out, right? It goes in the mouth and you somehow irritate the stomach and come out of the mouth. But well, Nemo, Nemo got blown out of the blowhole too. <laughs> yeah, the blowhole, exactly. <laughs> That's not anatomically possible, right? Oh, well, sure. <laughs> so we're just bringing it, we're, we're just grounding it. We're bringing it back down to science. <laughs> the back exit is perfectly acceptable for many species, such as the land snail. Okay, it's a common popular prey. It's pretty <laughs> incapable of escaping attacks. It's just this little conical kind of a poop emoji swirl type of a shell, a little meta in that regard. It's but what makes it, it is. It's just sort of like, hey, I'm a snail and I look really tasty, but it has an incredible survival tactic, which is that it can come out from the butt of predatory birds completely alive. Wow. <laughs> so it just, and I mean, it just sort of tucks inside its shell. It's got that little armor. It's sort of. And, and it has to do with the, the birds that are also ingesting it. And it's not a 100% of the time Time it emerges alive, like, you know, let's be real here. In 2012, Shinichiro Wada reported that the land snail found in the Hahajima Island in the Western Pacific could survive being swallowed by the Japanese white-eyed bulbul and the brown-eared bulbul. Both of these predators were fed adult snails that are about 2.5 millimeters in shell height, not huge. 
Once the birds had their fill, they rewarded the researcher with a load of data. (laughs) 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 Wada observed that about 15% of the fed snails passed through the gut alive and were active after their grand escape and survived for at least one week after the experiment. And some even gave birth to baby snails after emerging alive from the bird's intestines. Mm. And part of it has to do with the fact that these snails are really tiny, right? Mm. The remains of larger snail species were almost always seriously damaged. So the small size allows the shell to remain intact despite the many crushing and cracking parts in a bird's digestive tract. The whole shell, along with the copious amounts of mucus produced by the snail, Mm. (laughs) could have helped keep the stomach acids from reaching the snail's body. But that's not all that animals need to survive. How are they going to breathe in there, right? (laughs) There are some species of mud snails that can survive in waters with little to no dissolved oxygen for nine days or even more. And what they do is they store these gas bubbles in a small cavity, air from which is used in times when oxygen availability is low. So they have their kind of own little store of oxygen and air that they can use. Yeah, their little stash. Yeah. Nice. And, you know, it doesn't sound like a really pleasant thing to be consumed by an animal and getting pooped out, but there are some perks. (laughs) Wada and the team showed that snails might use this journey for their dispersal across the island, right? It's a way for them to colonize different parts, some of the same ways that, you know, when a bird is eating different seeds, Mm -hmm. it can plant populations across different areas, which is beneficial for the plants, right? They also suggest that passing through the gut may be a cue to give birth, which may enhance the probability of colonization success at the site of deposition. Oh. So it's kind of how the berries are worked, too. It's, it's almost a symbiotic relationship here. So as prey evolved newer ways to shield themselves, predators also evolved strategies to counter these moves. Sure, because they're not getting the nutrients if they're not breaking. It's it's like they just swallowed a rock. That's no good for them. Exactly. And so they have to figure out new and innovative ways to really eat that prey. So there's the spiny-nosed sculpin fish. What it does is it tears down the hard exterior of a mollusk. They use their teeth to punch holes in the shells of their prey which then makes it more digestible. Mm -hmm. The scientists found that 40% of the unpunched mollusks emerged alive from fish intestines, but none of the punched individuals survived, Mm -hmm. right? Makes sense. Mm -hmm. They also found that the fish could adjust its punching behavior. So when they were given limpets, which is a prey that has a protective shell but no covering over the shell's exit, the fish never resorted to punching. This basically showed that the fish reserved their energy for punching only when it was absolutely essential. They know Mm -hmm. when to punch. Mm There's a type of worm that is called the C. elegans, and when it's faced with stress, it adopts a resting state called a dower. Scientists observed that most of the worms in the intestine were dowers, which suggests they might be better equipped to survive being eaten and come out the other end alive. But sometimes the dower larvae want to get eaten. So these worms usually only move two-dimensionally, crawling away their whole life until they turn dower. But dower larvae start to lift off the ground, hoist their body vertically, and do a sort of dance. And in my mind, this looks like those inflatable noodle guys. Yeah. Like, hey, come over here. And this behavior is called nictation. And it's thought to increase their chances of being preyed on by animals. And worms only do this when their food source depletes or they face difficult climates so as to get transported to a more favorable area. It's hitching a ride on a poop canoe. You got to take a gamble. (laughs) If you're going to starve, you might as well see if you can get out of there. Exactly right. And the final, the article has a lot of examples, but I do want to read word for word the final closing sentence, which (laughs) is, 
They take charge of the intestinal reins and orchestrate their own butt escapes. <laughs> Mic drop. If only we could do the same. Just <laughs> get, like, like some sort of interstellar predator coming by where mm-hmm. we could just jump on inside the mouth and escape and be pooped out on another mm-hmm. planet. That might be kind of fun. Mm. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. Well, speaking of tiny creatures inside of other creatures, (laughs) this article comes to us from LiveScience.com, and it's titled, Woman's Odd Headache Was from Tapeworm Larvae (gasps) in Her Brain. No! This is the kind of thing that brings out my inner hypochondriac, because I'm like, (laughs) I get headaches. How do I know that mine aren't tapeworm egg? Yeah. So a young woman in Australia was found to have tapeworm larvae lurking in her brain, a very unusual diagnosis, considering that she had no risk factors for the condition, (laughs) according to a new report of the case. So it's actually believed to be the first locally acquired case of the disease in Australia. That is someone who hadn't traveled out of the country. Oh, wow. So the 25-year-old woman went to the hospital after experiencing headaches for a week, according to the report in the American Journal of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene. She was no stranger to headaches. She'd experienced migraines with visual auras on a regular basis since the age of 18. But her latest headache seemed different. Hmm. It wouldn't go away when she took painkillers, and her visual symptoms were more severe, with her vision even becoming blurry at times. An MRI of her head revealed a single brain lesion, which doctors suspected was either a brain abscess or a tumor. But when they performed brain surgery to remove the lesion, they got a surprise. (gasps) The lesion was really a cyst, and it wasn't made of human tissue. No. Further tests. They cut her open, and she's wiggling in there. Like, oh. Yeah. I I don't know what it looked like, but, uh... (laughs) <laughs> That's yeah. what I'm here for is the gross visuals. That's what I'm here for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so further tests revealed that the cyst contained tapeworm larvae. Oh. And the woman was diagnosed with neurocystister... Uh... <laughs> we go again. <laughs> <laughs> the woman was diagnosed with neurocystisosis, which is a parasitic disease that occurs when a person ingests microscopic eggs from a pork tapeworm mm. or tania solium and when the eggs hatch, the larvae can travel throughout the body, including to the brain, muscles, skin, and eyes, where they form cysts, according to the WHO, the World Health Organization. I mean, you say cysts, but we're talking egg sacs, basically, Yeah, right? it's an egg sac. Yeah. And she got uh-huh. it from eating pork. Like that she just ate some pork, and it hatched inside her, and got out of her stomach, and floated around until it lodged in her brain. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and it goes a little bit further into where uh, the this larvae comes from. But luckily, after the cyst was removed, the woman did not need any further treatment for the infection. So, you know, okay. all you need is a little brain surgery That's and right. you're good to go. Yeah, just get rid of the egg sac and, and you're fine, right? Yeah. yeah. No yeah. more headaches. That's... Unless there's an egg sac somewhere else in her body that they haven't found yet. I mean, you don't Rude, know. Exactly. Jennifer. Very true. <laughs> <laughs> so this Tapeworm is common in developing nations, including countries in Latin America, Mm. Africa, and Asia. 
The life cycle of the Tania solium parasite usually requires pigs to have contact with human feces, and so infections are most often found in areas with poor sanitation practices mm-hmm. in which pigs come into contact with human feces. Mm. But in Australia, all previous reported cases have been among people who either immigrated to the continent or traveled to areas where the disease is endemic before returning to Australia. Mm-hmm. And similarly, in the U.S., nearly all cases occur in people who have immigrated from areas where the disease is endemic as well. Mm-hmm. So exactly how this Australian woman caught this disease is a mystery. She was born in Australia and had never traveled overseas. However, people can catch neurocystisersosis from close contact with a person who is infected with a pork tapeworm. Tapeworm carriers can pass on the parasite if they don't wash their hands properly because the tapeworm eggs pass in the feces. So there's somebody else wandering around Australia, is their theory, who currently has this tapeworm living, hopefully not in their brain, but somewhere, and they gave it to her. Yeah, maybe, because Uh. the woman did not report having a previous or current contact from an endemic area, so that's kind of the only assumption they can make. You could also assume that she had maybe a ham sandwich from Subway. You know, at this point, <laughs> who knows where they source that? You can't, you can't know. Yeah, very true, very true. And the Australian woman's case is similar to that of a New York woman who was diagnosed with neurocystisosis last year. The woman, Rachel Palma, also developed the disease without having any risk factors. Wow. And Aww. the authors of the new report hope that their case raises awareness about the possible risk of locally acquired cases occurring in non-endemic countries. This is where it starts. You get one or two <sighs> cases. You're like, I don't know where this one came from, but oh, there's a related one. All of a sudden, you got 80,000 people with tapeworms in their brain. <laughs> yeah. Um, next thing you know, somehow it's aerosol transmissible <laughs> and there's just tapeworms <laughs> in the air. Have you guys seen that Futurama episode where Fry gets tapeworms and they actually like improve his whole body? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Just saying, there's always a silver lining, even if it's a cartoon fictive narrative. Yeah, you heard it here, Forrest. You heard it here first. (laughs) Maybe I have a tapeworm. Eggs, not pork. (laughs) All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include The Infinite Pattern That Never Repeats a mammoth find near Mexico City, and how does science really work? I'm sure that's a very (laughs) short and quick article. Explains it all. It's good to go. (laughs) If you'd like to support our podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.